Um, Jesus came to be the ultimate barrier breaker, uh, that there are barriers that, that he intended to cross. And there's a number of them in this story that I wanted to share with you. And, and, and we, we experience those things in our own culture, don't we, do we not? Um, I mean, barriers are meant to keep people out and barriers are meant to keep people in, right? And sometimes barriers can be good things. Um, and I'm going to show you a, a picture of my dogs. This is uh, Connie and Gibbs. And I love my dogs. They're the best dogs in the world. I, and why anybody would have any problems with them, I have no idea. Uh, but, you know, we had thought, you know, we, we moved to Elkton a few years ago. And uh, we would let our dogs go. And they, they had this habit of wanting to visit our neighbors and talk with them, play with them, and play with their dogs, and leave little presents in their yards. And... Uh, and we thought, man, this is great. And our neighbors, they were, they were, you know, it was fine at first, but after a while they're like, hey, could you get your dogs, you know? And so we decided to build a barrier, a fence, because we could either do one or two, a few things. We can keep them on a, on a leash the whole time, or we can keep them inside our house and drive us nuts, uh, or we can build a fence, right? And so we built this fence, and, you know, fence these days is not cheap. But anyway, we did it anyway so that our dogs can be out in the backyard and play. And then one day I was over at my neighbor's house, kind of telling me, and guess what? I saw one of my, we put the dogs out in the backyard, in our fenced backyard, and I'm at my neighbor's house, and I see my dog, Connie. And I'm like, should have built a bigger fence, you know? <laughs> our dog has figured out a way to get over that fence. So anyway, um, the intention was there, neighbors, forgive us. We will try to do better to keep our dogs in our yard. But, uh, but, but there are also some barriers that are not good. If you look at history, you know, there are barriers that, um, that we need to overcome. For instance, in our U.S. US history in the 60s, we had the Civil Rights Movement. And that was a good thing because we, as a, as a nation, we realized that no person should be judged simply based on the color of their skin. And if you look back in the history, uh, in, the, uh, in the era of World War II and, and how that came to be is because Hitler was persecuting and killing those that were of the Jewish faith. And we felt as a nation that it was important that we come and alongside and support and defeat Hitler in that way. And we just celebrated Memorial Day last week and many of our relatives were a part of that world war and has had a profound impact on our families, in our lives today. But it was a barrier that needed to be crossed. And the Apostle Paul describes it like this, that when God sent his son Jesus, that there was this ultimate barrier that he was wanting to cross, and that was that barrier of sin. And Paul says it like this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God couldn't wait for us to turn back to him, because the reality is we couldn't. And more importantly, we most likely wouldn't turn back to him. And it was necessary for God to bridge that barrier of sin, to obliterate its hold on humanity, even though it was costly to him. And so what we're going to read here at the beginning in John 4, verses 3 through 6, is this idea that, that, that Jesus is setting the example of being a, uh, that God is a, a barrier breaker. And he's setting for us an example of how we can share the hope of the gospel that many of us embrace. 
So let's look at uh, verse 3 here, and it says this, that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass, and, and I love this phrase, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so I want to pause and just kind of paint this picture a little bit more for all of us. And the first thing I want to note is that phrase or that word that he had to pass through Samaria. You see, Jesus was on a mission, and that mission was to bring true worshipers to his Father in heaven. And during the time of Jesus, the people of Samaria and the people of Israel did not exactly get along. There was a lot of animosity between these two people groups, so much so that any good Jewish citizen would not dare step onto any land that was identified as a part of Samaria. And they would go out of their way to avoid that land. And so on here, I don't know if you can see this map real well, but on the bottom here is Judea, and at the top there is Galilee, and in the middle there is Samaria. And it talks about how Jesus was leaving from, Samaria, uh, excuse me, from Judea to go to Galilee. And as you can see, the quickest way would to be go right through Samaria. But because of this animosity that these two people groups had, anybody that was Jewish, if they were in Judea to get to Galilee, what they would do is they would cross the Jordan River, walk around Samaria, and then cross back to go into Galilee. And if you notice, there's a little dotted line with an arrow there. You can't see it really well, I don't think. But that is how they would typically travel to Galilee. They would avoid the land of Samaria altogether. And this division, this barrier was built up based on their ethnicity because of the things that they practiced. And if you go back to understand this a bit better, you go back to the 8th century of B.C., and if you read the Chronicles of the Kings, and in particular, you know, 2 Kings, speaks of how Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And that during this time, the, the king of Assyria had deported the Israelites from that land of Assyria and started to bring in people from the neighboring Gentile lands. In 2 Kings 17, 24, it says this, that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and some other places and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And what these people brought with them was their practices of worshiping their pagan gods and all the rituals that went along with that. But they wanted prosperity in their land, so they thought that they would incorporate some of the practices of the, 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 the Jewish religion as well. And ultimately, they created this new religion that incorporated practices from pagan um, religious practices and that of Jewish practices. And so naturally, this just offended the Jewish people all the more. And then through the centuries, they, their hatred for the Samaritans just got worse and worse and worse. But yet the people of Samaria still acknowledged many of the things that uh, was true of the Jewish faith, such as Jacob and Abraham and Moses, some significant characters of the Jewish faith. 
And so the second thing to note is that, that they make reference to Jacob's well in this passage. And some of you might be familiar with Jacob. He was the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. And if you know the story of how he eventually married his wife, Rachel, he was at a well and he saw Rachel coming with her flock of sheep. Is that right? Do you call it a flock of sheep? I don't know what you call sheep. We'll call it a flock of sheep. Brought sheep and he saw that they needed to get some water. So he rolled the stone away and watered her sheep and learned that she was a distant relative. And he got excited about that. And then one thing led to another and he asked her hand for marriage. And so Jacob became a significant part of the story of Israel, which also became a significant part of the story of Samaria and the Samaritans and the religion that they practiced. And the other thing that we know about Jacob is that he had this dream, right? This Jacob's ladder. Have you ever heard of that? And it's this ladder that went from earth up to heaven and heaven to earth. And the angels of God would go up and down this ladder. And it was a significant dream and represented the connection that God was going to have with his creation, mankind. And this dream demonstrated that God who created the universe desires an intimate relationship with his creation. And most importantly, that he was going to be the one that initiates that relationship, that connection. And so it's interesting that this woman from Samaria references Jacob because this dream that Jacob had was about Jesus. And she questioned, are you greater than Jacob? And he could have said, yeah. But he wanted to get to know her or let her know that he knew her well. And so one other thing I do want to make a note about this one section of verses here is this, is that it says that Jesus was tired. He says that he, he, he sat by the well. He was wearied. It was about the sixth hour. And if you know anything about this timing, the sixth hour is for us about midday, like noontime. It's, it's probably the hottest time of the day. And so Jesus, he was by himself. He had sent his disciples in or the disciples went into town to get some food and he's there by himself and it's hottest part of the day and he's tired. And not only that is he tired, but he's thirsty. And so what's significant about this is that Jesus is God in the flesh, but he's fully human. He experienced life just like you and I experience life. He was hungry. He was thirsty. And guess what? He got tired. I mean, like at the end of the sermon, you'll be tired. <laughs> Don't fall asleep, though. Stay with me. But that's the great thing about Jesus, that he experienced life just like you and I, so that we can be without excuse, that we know that he knows everything about us because he experienced life just like we do. And so we see this story here that he sees this woman who's a Samaritan coming to draw water. And so he asks her for a drink. And so this poses the first question from this woman. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You know how I was talking about barriers? So we had the one barrier, the Jewish and the Samaritans, but now, not only that, there's this man-woman uh, barrier, a gender barrier that is being crossed. 
And in case you thought or that John thinks that we didn't quite understand, he puts a little footnote in here and he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So do you think we get the picture now? And boy, I kind of wish that there was video back in that day. I wish they had YouTube at that time. You know what I mean? Like, it would be fun to see the reaction of this woman when Jesus asked her for uh, a drink. And I imagine it was something like this. Like, he said, hey, mate, can I get a drink from you? And she probably stopped and looked over her right shoulder, looked at him, and looked over her left shoulder, and looked at him and said, hey, you talking to me? <laughs> I do that. Are you talking to me? You know what I'm talking about, right? She was confused. You see, Jesus, he is a breaking barriers left and right. And he's all about overcoming barriers. Not only was he a Jew and she was a Samaritan, they had no dealings with one another. He was crossing that barrier. And he's a man and she's a woman. And, and things that I learned when I studied here is that it was very unusual for a man to talk to a woman that was not related to him. In fact, it says in, in one of the commentaries that the Jew, Jewish tradition was that Jewish men were to avoid any unnecessary conversation with women. And even I read that one of the six activities listed as unbecoming for a scholar or a rabbi was one who had a conversation with a woman. I mean, that's not like today, but back then that was a taboo. That was a, that was a barrier that you just didn't cross. But Jesus willingly and wantonly crossed that barrier. So Jesus talking with a, with a woman may have been offensive to some. He crossed that social ethnic barrier. You know, this idea that Jews avoid dealing with Samaritans. And he continues to have a conversation with, the, with, with this woman, which is a big no-no. This is a fascinating story. And now Jesus begins to pique her curiosity about who he is. There was something about Jesus that was irresistible to her. She couldn't get away from him. And so Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she takes a moment, she checks out Jesus, looks around, he doesn't have a bucket, he doesn't have a ladle, he doesn't have a cup. And she's thinking, what are you talking about? You have nothing to draw water with. I mean, she's still thinking just physical water, right? And, and now Jesus is kind of messing with her a little bit. I may, maybe that's not a right term. He's not messing with her. He's just trying to engage her in conversation. But he's trying to make her think beyond just the water from the well. And so she could have reacted in one of a few ways, right? I mean, she could have run away. This man's talking to me. He's a Jewish. Who knows? He might be trying to hurt me or do something. She could have run away. She could have ignored him. How many good are good at that, just ignoring people? I, I can be pretty good at that, right? If someone said, I can just, mm, you're not there, forget you. She could have done that. But she doesn't. She continues to engage in conversation with Jesus. 
And so she's confused in her response. She's like, you don't have anything to draw water with. And Jesus begins to reveal to her that there's something greater that he has to offer that's going to provide satisfaction that she's never experienced before. Whereas if she keeps coming back to this, well, this is only a temporary satisfaction. You'll be thirsty, you'll drink, be satisfied, but then you'll be thirsty again. And so he's talking about living water. And so she begins, all right, and I think she's being a little bit sarcastic. Like, okay, you can give me living water so I don't have, yeah, sure, I'll take that water. Yeah, so I don't have to come out here by myself anymore. No problem. Yeah, give me this water. You see, again, the thing you got to remember about this picture is that it's the middle of the day. And she's by herself. And if you really take time to think about that, you see the custom in that day is that women generally went to the well to get their water for the day in the morning or they would come back in the evening. And they always came in groups. I think partly it was for safety reasons that they would travel in groups, but also there was this social component. They enjoyed being with their friends, but this woman is here getting water in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and she's by herself. And you should be asking yourself, why is she by herself? Because that's unusual. That is not the norm. There is something different about this woman. And so what I believe what Jesus is now going to do is that he is now going to begin trying to build a relationship with this woman from Samaria. And he begins to ask questions that dig a little bit deeper. And so he says this. He says, hey, can you go and get your husband and bring her back? Bring him back and we can have a conversation. And I think Jesus is knowing who she is and getting ready to reveal his knowledge of her. And he wants her to understand that he knows everything about her. But he still wants to know her and have conversation with her. But she tries to just answer it really quickly. Oh, I don't have a husband. And here's the kicker. Jesus says, yeah, you're right when you say you have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And so here's now another barrier that Jesus is crossing, this moral behavior. Rightly or wrongly, most people in Jesus' day would have drawn this conclusion about her moral behavior that, that she wasn't right, that she was, quote, not clean from the, the Jewish angle of things, that she was kind of a, a woman of bad reputation because of the number of marriages that she had. And the fact that the person that she was living with now was not her husband. But yet, see, Jesus is crossing this barrier. That doesn't cause him to reject her or run away from her. He runs to her and pursues her relentlessly. You see, she wasn't even well accepted amongst her peers in the Samaritan religion. They didn't want to hang out with her. She was an outcast. And more than likely it was because of her moral behavior. So now this woman's confronted with her moral failures and the fact that he's Jewish and now he's kind of revealed this special talent. She tries to dodge the question, right? And she's like, mm, you're different. Uh, are you a prophet or something like that? Well, if you're a prophet, then answer me this. 
You Jews, you Jews say the proper place to worship is Jerusalem, but our spiritual ancestors say it's to be on this mountain, which we know is Mount Gerizim. And so she's now saying, all right, so which is it? You're, you, know, you prophet. And so Jesus' response to her is, listen, what's important here is the mission that God has given me, and we're looking for people that will worship God, the Father in heaven, in spirit, and in truth. And what I think Jesus is saying is that his mission was to transform citizens of the world, all peoples from all people groups, to be born from above, to be spiritually reborn. And he's identifying himself as the one that's the, the, the facilitator that can bring this change about, that he is the one that can bring salvation. He's the one that can cause our spirit to come alive, to be reborn. And I would encourage you, you know, in John chapter 3, it's interesting that the story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and this story of the woman of the well are back to back in the Gospel of John. And I would encourage you to read chapter 3 sometime today, but to, to give you a quick summary, you see this guy Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader well-respected, knowledgeable of the Word of God, had influence on the people that he taught about who God was and how we can live for God and how we can make sacrifices to God. But yet, he came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He came by himself. Both the woman was with Jesus by herself and Nicodemus was with Jesus by himself. But Nicodemus came because he was embarrassed. He didn't want people to know that he was having a meeting with Jesus. But he, he saw something different about Jesus. There was something irresistible about him. He wanted to know some answers, but he came to him in the middle of the night by himself. This woman, middle of the day, was an outcast who was rejected by society but she had some spiritual understanding and she was, saw that Jesus was irresistible and that he was different and that he had something to offer. And so he was revealing to her that she too needed to be born again spiritually. And that we are to worship our Father in heaven through what Jesus teaches us and commands us. So, she reveals, I know about the Messiah. I know that there's this promised king that's going to restore everything. And then he says, well, guess what? I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And guess what she does? She drops her pot leaves it, and runs back to town. The thing, she was there to get water. She was thirsty. She forgets all about that. She runs back to the town and begins to tell everybody, you guys, you got to come out and meet this guy who knew, knows everything about me. You know who I am. Knows everything about me. Come. Can this be the Christ? And as we read earlier, that it says that people from the town started coming out to Jesus, having their own interaction with him. Say, so, hey, can you stay a couple more days? And he, he chooses to do so. And then the people say, you know what? We now believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we believe it no longer because of this woman's testimony. 
which is essential. That's how they got to know Jesus, because of the testimony of the woman. But now they say, now we've heard him for ourselves, and we understand that he is the Christ. That is a fascinating part of this story. There is no barrier that Jesus can prevent Jesus from pursuing us. And he desires for all people and all places to come to know him as their savior. And since this is the first Sunday, we always take time to observe communion. I'd like to invite the elders to go ahead and come forward and distribute the elements for our communion. And if you're new to Bible Fellowship, or if you've been attending for many years, I want you to know this. It's our desire. The pastors, Pastor Andrew, and Pastor Dan, and myself, and the elders, that many of them are coming forward to distribute the elements. It's our desire for you to know Jesus and to be known by him. It's our desire that you would follow him, follow his teaching, and, and, and obey all of his commands. And then if you've chosen to follow him, that, that you would share Jesus with everyone, everywhere, all the time. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our following of Jesus is to obey the commands that he's given us. Man, you can go ahead and distribute. If you can go ahead and do the cup first and then come back and do the bread. And so just as a instruction, way of instruction, I'm just asking him to, to distribute it right now. When you get the cup, there's some cup holders. Go ahead and put your cups right in there, and then they're going to come back through and give you the bread, and then we're going to observe the Lord's ta table a little bit later. But one of the things that Jesus had taught his disciples and what the Apostle Paul taught his disciples to participate in something what we call communion. And one of the things that I like to do as this is being distributed is we're going to, I'm going to have a song played for you soon called Relentless. And I'd like us to meditate for a while just what it means that God pursues us. And I hope and pray that you understand how relentlessly he pursues us. Nothing will stand in his way to get to us, to get to our hearts. He, want us, he wants us to know him as our Savior there's nothing that will stand in his way. And the significance of, the, of this practice that we have to observe the Lord's table goes back to when dis the disciples were hanging out with Jesus. As you know, about a month and a half ago, we celebrated Easter, where Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. But prior to that, Jesus had a meal with the disciples. And it was a meal that they observed as a Jewish tradition, the Passover meal. But Jesus now introduces more meaning to this Passover meal. From when they were eating, he took time to take the bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is going to represent my body. My body will be broken for you. And I want you to know every time you eat this bread that this represents 
what's going to happen in the next couple of days. My body being broken for you. And then after supper, he poured wine into a cup and he distributed it to the disciples. And he says this, he said, this cup is now a representation of the new covenant of my blood. And with the celebration of Easter, we know that his blood flowed on Calvary for the purpose that would give us the forgiveness of our sin. And the Apostle Paul, who came to faith in Christ after the crucifixion, who became a, a great leader in, in, in preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, instructed the Christians at Corinth that whenever they eat this bread and drink the cup, that they're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we participate in this communion act, for the, any of you that have placed your faith in Jesus, you are invited to participate in this. And if you've not yet made that commitment, I would encourage you to turn to Jesus. That you would receive from him the gift that his death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Paul says it this way, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And he says it also this way, that the wages of sin is death. That death is that physical death, but it's also a spiritual death. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity because of our sin. But if you turn to Jesus, he offers us life. When we say, I want you to be my king, to be the chief influencer of my life, I would invite you to do that today. You see, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen him and believed. Do you know that you're blessed today? We've not seen Jesus. We weren't like the disciples. We didn't hang around him. Thomas said, I want to put my finger in your palms. Wouldn't you want to do that? I think I would. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet, yet believed. So when you put yourself under Jesus' teaching and some commands, you're living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and for you. My hope and prayer for you this morning is that you would know that, that there is nothing that can separate you from God. He loves you so, so, so much. Nothing can stand in his way in his pursuit of you. Jesus said on the night that he was be, to be betrayed, when he took the bread, he broke it. And he said this, this is my body, broken for you. Eat all of it. He took the cup, poured it and distributed it to the disciples and said, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. For those of you that have participated in this, you are making a declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to remind you to, and I would 
that we are encouraged and actually commanded by Jesus himself to share the hope that's within us. If you can put the slide back up, the, the idea is that we were to share Jesus. And I'd like to take it just a few more moments just to share with you how I think we can do it. First, it starts with compassion. You see, Jesus was on a mission. He said he had to go through Samaria. He had to tell this woman that was of, of an outcast, God loves you. God wants you. You can have relationship with him through me. I pray that you would begin with prayer that God would give you a heart for those that don't know Christ yet. And I believe that when we do those things that we'll feel compelled to share Jesus. And that there be no barrier that we're unwilling to cross. Some of those barriers are we feel afraid. We feel inadequate. I got news for you. Paul felt the same things. When he wrote to the church, he said, I came to you in much fear and trembling. Do you know what fear and trembling means? Fear and trembling, I'm afraid. I don't know what to say. He was willing to cross that barrier. He was willing to fail to tell people about Jesus. So once we cross that barrier, let's look for ways to engage with people. We can start by cultivating curiosity. In my small group, one of the studies that we're doing currently is called Empowered, written by Becky Pippert. And I want to just share an example that she has given to us of how she tries to cultivate curiosity. She had a conversation with a a student once, and she asked, she, she says there's kind of four kind of questions that you can ask. So a general question is the first one. And she asked the student, what are, you, what are you studying? And she said she was studying art. And so then she kind of goes to more specific questions to get to know the person, get to know their interest, what makes them tick. So she asked things like, why, why did you choose art? You know, do you have a particular art form that you like over another? Uh, what is it about art that you love? You can ask Kizzy. She's an artist. So the idea is that you want to just show genuine interest in the other person. And then transition to questions of issues that that, that, that person would relate to. And so she says something like this, since you're going to be making a living out of creating beauty, what draws you to beauty? What, or what do you think the source of beauty might be? So kind of asking questions that they're interested in, and you kind of learn more about what makes them tick? What's valuable to them? And then she transitions to a God-like question when she asks, do you think there might be a master artist behind what we see? Could there be a creator God who is the source of all beauty and has given us the ability to recognize and enjoy beauty? Now, the purpose of me sharing these kinds of questions is not to try to make you guys salespeople. You know, let me, let me put you into this car today. That's not the purpose. The hope is that you would be genuinely interested in those around you, that you would look to build relationship with them, and that you would broach spiritual questions with our friends, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with anybody. You see, Jesus said 
The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said the second is like to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to love people around us. We need to engage them in conversation in a loving way. With today being Pentecost Sunday, which basically means it's been 50 days since we celebrated the day that Jesus rose from the grave. It says that he poured out his Holy Spirit on the disciples, that they became apostles. And from there, he used them to go to the ends of the world, proclaiming the hope that Jesus forgives us and can restore us and put us in a right relationship that we can indeed be born again of our spirit, made alive to God through knowing Jesus Christ. My prayer is that he would do the same with us, that we would cross barriers, build relationships, and share Jesus. Worship team, if you can come forward and we can finish our last song.